3: to the show, it's Friday, so that means I'm out, and it's also hashtag FOF or F O F Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's Week to Week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipper.
2: I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's week-to-week politics program. You can find out more about week-to-week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at commonwealthclub.org. Now let's join
0: this week's program.
4: Good evening, and welcome to tonight's program and meeting hosted by the Commonwealth Club Silicon Valley, and by Wonderfest, the Bay Area beacon of science. My name is Tucker Hyatt. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Joseph Henrich, author of The Secrets of Our Success, How Culture is Driving Human Evolution, Domesticating Our Species, and Making Us Smarter. Dr. Henrich is co-director of the Human Evolution, Cognition, and Culture Center at Harvard University. He is also the Canada Research Chair in Culture, Cognition, and Evolution at the University of British Columbia. Dr. Henrik's work has been published in top scientific and economic journals. He has co-authored several books, including Why Humans Cooperate and The Weirdest People in the World? There is a question mark at the end of that title. The Weirdest People in the World. In 2004, he was awarded the Presidential Early Career Award, the highest honor bestowed by the US upon young scientists. He also won the Early Career Award for Distinguished Scientific Contributions given by the Human Behavior and Evolution Society. Dr. Henrik earned his master's and doctoral degrees in anthropology from UCLA. He also holds a degree in aerospace engineering, from the University of Notre Dame. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Dr. Joseph Henrich.
0: Hi everyone, nice to be with you. So I want to start off by introducing you to a puzzle and the puzzle is, how our species was able to be so successful. So long before uh, the origins of agriculture or the first cities or states or before industrial agriculture, uh, humans spread out of Africa around 100,000 years ago and then across, first they followed the southern route and eventually made it to Australia and Southeast Asia by 50 or 60,000 years ago. Then around 40,000 years ago, they, they go into uh, Europe And then eventually, sometime after 20,000 years ago, they spread into the New World, and by 16,000 years ago, they're all the way down at Tierra del Fuego. Now, during this expansion, they expand into an incredible diversity of environments, from the arid swamps of Australia, the malarial swamps of New Guinea, into the frozen tundra of Canada and the Arctic. And they're able to adapt to all these environments. Now, what's interesting about us is that uh, we have relatively few environment-specific adaptations. And this is interesting when you look at other species. So if you look at species like ants, they're the most successful invertebrate species. So they're kind of our comparative group in in the invertebrate world. But they've speciated into over 14,000 different species. And they have agriculture and slaves and um, lots of interesting patterns, but it's all based on genetic variation. So the question is how did we do it? Now I think everybody has a strong common sense reaction here that we did it well because we're smart, we have big brains and we can figure out problems. But I want to first begin by challenging the idea that that's the solution, that it's not our intelligence. So uh, to get us started I want to do something, I have a whole chapter on this in the book but I want to briefly dip into the lost European explorer files. So these are stories about Europeans, and in one case, a group of Americans, uh, who get stranded in some place where human hunter-gatherers have been living for centuries or millennia. And then the the explorers are plopped down and they need to survive. And we get to look at how good their big brains are at figuring out solutions to basic problems like finding food and, and water. So the story I'm going to use here is the story of Burke and Wills. So it's 1860 in Australia, and it's uh, folks in Melbourne decide to have an expedition. They're going to be, they aim to be the first Europeans to cross the center of Australia and up to the Gulf of Carpentaria. Now this is motivated by exploration, uh, but also by a possibility of having a telegraph cable that'll run down to Melbourne. So you can see here, they're down here in Melbourne and they want to go across the center off of Carpentry and then, and then back to Melbourne. That's the goal anyway. This is a very well-funded expedition. They actually import camels uh, from India because they think they'll do well in Australia. Um, the camels actually play a role later in the story. All right, so um, there's two different groups here. So um, the lead group takes off from Cooper's Creek. So they have supplies there, they bring them, they drop them in the, and four men head off with 12 weeks of food. Now another group is coming up to meet them, they're gonna be the resupply group, and then the idea is they'll all go back to Melbourne together. So they have their 12 weeks of food, and um, uh, after eight weeks, they still haven't arrived yet, and so they're getting a bit worried, but they sort of smell salt water, they find some brackish water, so they declare victory, because if you're doing the subtraction, they've only got four weeks to travel, which just took them eight weeks of food to go. Uh, so they start heading back things are going wrong they're running out of food they're eating their pack animals Uh, one man dies of a disease and generally they're sort of leaving so we kind of know the trail because they left deposits all along the way as they were dropping stuff off and so the time comes for the resupply group to leave and they they stay they're you know they still have enough food so they stay and then finally they decide to leave about a month later Uh, they leave early in the morning later that same morning Burke, Wills, and King, the last the three members of this group, finally get into camp and they've just missed them by a few hours. So Burke has to make a decision. Is his you know, bedraggled party gonna try to run and catch up to the rest of the party or are they gonna do something else? And he decides that they can follow Cooper's Creek to a police and a ranch about 150 kilometers away and they can follow Cooper's Creek most of the way. So uh, they head off for, for this ranch and police post which is prophetically at a place called Mount Hopeless. Um, so th- they begin following the creek and uh, then one of their, ca- their final camel gets stuck in mud and dies and now they're marooned along Cooper's Creek because they needed the camel to carry enough water to cross the last stretch of open desert because they lack the knowledge to, to find water in the desert. So they're trapped along Cooper's Creek. Now they're having trouble, they can't seem to fish, they can't make fish hooks, they can't hunt. But it looks like they might be able to survive because they're meeting the local Yawantru tribe. Now keep in mind that at this point, Australia has been a continent of only hunter-gatherers for 60,000 years, no agriculture. Uh, so these people have been living there for 60,000 years. Um, so they're getting gifts of fish from the local, from the local tribe. And uh, they also see them making Nardu cakes. Now, Nardu is a sporocarp, and you can see these are little, little Nardus, and you ca- you gather them up, and you grind them, and then you can make them into a flour. So Burke and Will see this, and they start doing it, and they're, you know, Victorian, so they, they know how to make bread. Uh, now, the problem is, is what they didn't see was that the Aboriginals, there's much more to the story. They grind it, they leach it, and then they heat it, and they use a muscle to eat it, because they don't want to introduce an organic substrate. Or they grind it, leach it, and then bake it in ash. And you have to do this because Nardu is toxic and indigestible unless properly processed. It has an enzyme called thiamine in it, and it'll de- it depe- uh, depletes the B1 in your body, and you get a horrible disease called beriberi. And William Wills, we-, we know a lot of, you know, we know the sort of details of what happened because Wills was writing in his journal, you know, he's a good Victorian, he's actually dying, he's writing how bad it feels to die. Um, <laughs> So Burke and Wills die of this, but then King stumbles off into the desert and he's rescued by the Yawantru, and eventually a group from Melbourne comes up and rescues him, and so we have his account as well. Now, what these these tell us, or what this hints at, is that it's not really our intelligence. These guys had months in the outback, but they couldn't do basic things like finding food and finding water, things that any aboriginal adolescent could do. Um, So there were no instincts that kicked in, no general intelligence. Now I mentioned they couldn't find water edible plants but we can compare them to their camels. So some of Burke and Will's camels escaped one night and now the center of Australia is full of feral camels. And camels have an ability to smell water from a mile away and they have scent and taste cues which allow them to cue in on those plants which, are, um, which they can eat and, and, and they have systems to detoxify things that humans lack. Um, so they could survive in an environment they didn't evolve in. So they couldn't, they couldn't make traps and spears or fishing hooks. These are all things, like as I mentioned, a local ad- adolescent can do. So you can ask yourself, what's missing from this group? Well, or from Birken, what, what didn't they have that the local adolescent has? Well, the local adolescent gets bequeathed a large body of cultural information that is accumulated over generations about what kind of foods to eat and how to process things and how to find uh, water and how to make shelters. So it's this second body of knowledge that accumulates and is transmitted in humans that seems to be important here. And that's what I'm gonna be focusing on is this second system of inheritance, this cultural inheritance. But before I get into the details of that, let me come at the same question uh, from another angle. So uh, this is research by Mike Tomasello and Esther Herman uh, in Leipzig, Germany, the Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology and what these developmental comparative psychologists did was they took three primate species, you can see them pictured here. Uh, you got orangutans, chimpanzees, and then two and a half year old humans. Now I put in a picture of my son Josh, who's two and a half year old, so he's representing the, the two year olds. Uh, um, and so the experimenters gave these guys a battery of cognitive tests, uh, 18 different ones, and they can be broken down into th- a few different categories. So here on this plot, these are the the, uh, tests that that have to do with your your ability to understand space, quantities, causality, and social learning. And this is the percent correct on the test. So this is how well these groups did on the test. Now, all three primates really like snacks. So if you get the test right, you get a snack. So they all want to get the test right. Now, the the chimps and the humans, you can see, they do about the same in space, the orangs a little bit worse, about the same in quantities, orangs again a little worse, and causality the same and a little worse. In fact, if you look at the tool using subtests, so one of the things you hear about humans is, we're good tool users. The chimps actually outperform the, the two and a half year olds on the causality test. But where the humans clean up is in the social learning test, any kind of imitation, they even have trouble designing tasks where the humans aren't at ceiling and the chimps or the other apes aren't at floor. So the thing that seems to make at least young human cognition special is our ability to learn from others, imitative abilities. Now in the book I go through other kinds of evidence where chimps pair off against humans. So uh, there's been studies of working memory and this compares undergraduates to chimpanzees. And chimpanzees are faster reaction times and at least some chimpanzees can compete with undergrads in terms of their working memory abilities. My favorite one is strategic thinking. So uh, Colin Camera at Caltech led led a a study in which they had a strategic game where you had to kind of anticipate what your partner was going to do. And the only way to really win the game, to play the game the way the super rational economists would want us to play, is to kind of randomize around a certain number. So play a strategy 80% of the time and another strategy 20% of the time. So chimps, when playing with each other, zero in on the Nash equilibrium, on the optimal decision for that game. Humans systematically miss it, even when they play the, the game, because they have trouble doing things at random and detecting uh, other other patterns. So, that's, these are just all ideas that should challenge us that you know it's really about some kind of innate uh, brain power that makes us different. Okay, one final point about this, and this is beginning to to let you know where I'm going, is that, so one unfair thing about this experiment is of course, uh, it's not using adult humans. And if we put adult humans, you know, people from this room, for example, into this experiment, they would really clean up, they'd wipe out the chimps in this game. So obviously by the time we're we're adults, we're really good at all these tasks. But that's because little Josh there and and all of his other little two-year-old friends are gonna keep getting cognitively more sophisticated through their whole life, or at least until mid-20s and then they kind of trail off. at least on these tests. Other things get better, you get Uh But the apes don't get better. In fact, sometimes the uh, infant apes, say the four and five-year-old apes, are actually do better on the tests, and you might have a slight decline as the chimps get older. So there's not this long-running massive increase in the cognitive abilities that occurs over development. Okay, but I, you wanna head off one thing. You might say, well, but there's still a problem here because we're clearly a lot smarter than apes. But that's in part because we culturally inherited a lot of pre-built solutions. So these are all examples of things that evolved culturally over time and over history, and in many cases, we know something about when and where they evolved. So screws, springs, levers, and pulleys. My favorite example is the wheel. Now, the wheel's often thought of as something that cavemen invented, but actually, the wheel arrives relatively late in human history, about 6,000 years ago, and it's only invented in Eurasia, so it's never invented in Australia, it's never invented in the New World, it's not invented in Oceania, and everybody has dogs, so there's always you know, a cart that could be pulled by a dog the way this, these Belgian, uh, well, it's actually a Belgian, it's a Belgian scene, I, I don't know what kind of dog it is. Um, And Australians, so then my next example is uh, uh, elastically stored energy. So nowhere on the continent of Australia did anybody ever invent elastically stored energy, which you use in bows and spring traps. And the same thing is true for compressed air. But once you have these, you can recombine them and you can use them in all kinds of things. So wheels get used in pottery as well as in carts.
3: We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. And now back to John Zippers' week-to-week political roundtable talk right here on the Michelle Miao Show.
0: Another thing is all of you have been bequeathed a numbering system which allows you to count without bounds. You could just count all day and you would still be able to keep counting. But societies like the ones I lived in, the Machiganga, count one, two, three, many so they can't differentiate 16 and 17. And when we look at anthropological studies from lots of societies, we find that you can find lots of systems people count to 27 in some places or 16 or 32, but that means if you can count to 32 and you need to differentiate 42 and 43, it's very difficult because you don't have the numbers to do it, um, so you can't count without bounds. So that's a mental tool that we have by cultural inheritance. Finally, let me mention this last one which is, is subtle, which is our spatial cognition. So English, our language, and, and many other modern languages have three spatial coordinate systems. There's north, south, east, and west, which is uh, our absolute coordinate system. Then there's an ego-centered, where you have a front, a back, a left, and a right. So you can direct someone based on that. And there's another relative one where I might uh, draw a line between myself and the door and say, I'll meet you to the left of the, do- uh, to, uh, to the left, and then it means the left of the line that I drew between myself and the door, or the- myself and the flagpole, say. But some, not, all, not all groups have this, so um, many groups are known anthropologically will just have one, they'll have north, south, east, and west. So they have to solve all their problems and make all their references with north, south, east, and west. Now they get super good at that, but um, and way better than you know, people who live in other societies that use other techniques, but it means that they can't make a left-right distinction. Okay, so that gives you some sense of how this cumulative body can make us smarter. Now, get to the the answer to the question, the the reason why we're able to to survive in all these environments and the success of our species is because we have this second system of inheritance, this culture that over generations by learning from each other, we can accumulate cultural adaptations. The two key ingredients are one, high fidelity cultural learning, so being able to copy each other, which is in many ways the opposite of what we normally think of as intelligence. When we test people for their intelligence, we don't allow them to copy off their neighbor. Um, And then sociality, the fact that we're interconnected, we can learn stuff from each other and recombine it. And this gives rise to social groups, societies, populations have collective brains, which means that the ability of that group to produce innovations and to uh, evolve rapidly, get more and more know-how to be better adapted to their environment, depends on the size and interconnectedness of the population. And then the final point uh, that I'll make briefly at the end is that this has probably been going on for over a million years. So these cultural adaptations, these cultural products, tools, and the, the presence of the collective brain sort of as a group ability to produce adaptations uh, drove genetic evolution. All right. now. The emergence of these ideas has been inhibited uh, over many decades now because people dichotomize types of explanations. There's one group of biologists say, or sociobiologists who want to have genetic evolutionary explanations for human behavior. And another group says it's all about learning and culture. So what this the tradition that I'm from does is we take the power of natural selection that has helped explain so much of the natural world, and we turn it on learning. We say, how should people learn? What kinds of ideas should they pay attention to? Who should they pay attention to? And what's the best way for them to integrate different kinds of information? So you think about the cognitive, the psychological capacities for cultural learning, and then you can think about how that gives rise to, to cultural learning. And then finally, of course, this is going to feed back on the genetic system. I just want to give you a little bit of a sense of how you can do that. How can you use natural selection to think about learning? And the example that I'll give is uh, figuring out who to learn from. So initially, we developed a lot of theory about who that was, but there's now been a a big blossoming uh, empirical industry. So lots of experimental work by developmental psychologists and others showing that there's good evidence for all these, even in babies as young as one. So using cues of skill or competence. So if you're a hunter gatherer, you might look at who shoots, whose arrow tends to hit the target, learn from them. Or for success, you might look at the person who tends to big br- uh, bring back the most game or has the largest house or something like that. Prestige is actually a second order one. So in prestige, you look at who other people are paying attention to and deferring. So all the learners are playing the same game. Who should we learn from? But th- they're partially informed, so they're deferring to and watching certain members, and then you can use that in integration with other cues to to help zero in on who to learn from. Age can also be a good cue. So if you're a young learner, if you're a five-year-old, it's not a good idea for you to copy the best hunter in your community, because he's probably about 38, and his skills are way beyond you. So what you do is you copy the best seven-year-old, and then you get to be a seven-year-old, and then you copy the best nine-year-old. So you can gradually scaffold your skills up, up yourself. Another thing age is useful is that um, in small scale societies and societies that have been important over human history, uh, not everybody gets to be 60 or 70. And so there's been a lot of filtering that goes on before that. So there's sort of information content. There's the, you know, you have to have a certain amount of things going for you to get to be old. And if you're doing something obviously uh, bad, you you don't make it that far. Um, So that's a way by focusing on older members of your community you can, Get more adaptive information. And then finally self-similarity cues. So so sex and ethnicity or dialect can be important cues. So there's good reason to believe the sexual division of labor in the human species is old, so males should tend to copy males and females should tend to copy females. That's going to get you skills and know-how that's going to be likely to be useful to you later in life. Uh, And then ethnicity and dialect will help learners get those believe social norms that allows them to coordinate. So little kids will preferentially learn food choices, for example, from people who speak uh, the same way their mom speaks, uh, meaning the same dialect or, or language. They'll also uh, prefer playmates who speak those dial- with the dialect. And we now know that this implies, this, uh, these biases apply to a vast range of domains. So domains like food preferences and mate choice, uh, adopting technology, suicide even spreads by these cues. So when a celebrity commits suicide, the more prestigious the celebrity, the more likely others will copy them. They copy method and they tend to match on sex. So if it's a male that commits suicide, males tend to commit suicide and same with females. And they match on ethnicity. So if a Hispanic commits suicide, then there's a, that follows the ethnicity and lots of other domains. Okay, so these look like adaptations. They develop early by age one. They're automatic, they're unconscious. We found them in lots of human societies. Okay, so genetic evolution gives rise to cultural learning and then by selectively learning from each other over generations, you can get adaptations. Not adaptations that anyone figured out or racked their brains to come up with, but just things that emerge because every generation people are only looking at some people. The more successful, the healthier members of the community. So let me give you an example, spices. So many of you probably like spices, but spices are an oddity in the natural world. Other animals don't use spices. And the chemicals that are in spices uh, are often evolved actually to keep mammals like us away. So chili peppers, I have a picture of chili peppers here. The capsaicin in chili peppers is actually evolved to spark the pain circuits basically uh, in mammals because it wants to in the evolution sense keep mammals away because it wants birds to, to better, birds are better dispersers than mammals and birds aren't affected by this particular chemical. But when you look at the details of who uses spices and how they use it, it becomes clear that these are, are projection, uh, protection against pathogens. So the chemicals and spices kill pathogens in meat and in places where there's lots of problems with pathogens, the recipes involve uh, combinations of, of potent uh, anti-pathogen chemicals. Uh, and we're, if you go to Norway and you compare that to Indonesia, you can see the immense difference in the kind of antipathogen capability of the, the recipes. But of course, people just like spices and they just use the recipes. It's not something that's designed. The same is true of, of corn in the New World before the Europeans arrived. Lots of populations were dependent on corn. The problem with corn is if you eat mostly corn, you end up getting a horrible disease called pellagra because you don't get enough niacin. But if you mix uh, burnt seashells, or you shovel ash from your fire, from certain kinds of wood, into your corn mix, you create a chemical reaction, you're adding an alkali, and you chemically break open the niacin, and you make it so that you can live on corn as a staple. Populations don't understand this, they think it's their custom, it's just the way they like it, they'll often give you a taste reason why they they do it. Um, And we know this is hard to figure out because Europeans transported corn over to Europe, and lower, Lower status groups began depending on corn and then Europe suffered these epidemics of pellagra that went on for, for centuries. They didn't figure it out. <clears throat> so these, uh, I'll, if you want to read about uh, pregnancy taboos in Fiji, you can, you can read the book. Um, so these are unconscious uh, adaptations that allow humans to solve local problems like pathogens in meat or like the problem of eating corn um, where, cause, where there's no causal understanding. And in the book, I actually discuss some of the cases where if people did understand it, it would make the adaptation less effective. Okay, once you have this idea, then you, in, in, the, in my business, we build mathematical models and you can show that the size of a population and the degree to which people are interacting and sharing information actually affects how fancy the technology is gonna get and how many tools you can produce. Uh, it also means that if there's a sudden reduction and the population should say get cut off for some reason, they'll suffer a loss of technology. Okay, so um, a quick study from Oceania. So this is Rob Boyd and Michelle Klein. And what they did is they wanted to to explore this idea of the collective brain. So they measured the complexity of tools uh, at a bunch of different islands in Oceania to get the number of different uh, marine foraging tools they have and the complexity of those tools. And this is a little bit of their data. Uh, Along the horizontal is the population size of the Polynesian island at the time of European contact and then this is the number of tools here, and then that's the complexity of the tool, the average complexity, how, how many parts it has. And you can see that bigger, bigger islands with larger populations had both more tools and they had fancier tools. And what this high contact, low contact thing shows, if you'll notice, the high contact societies with the triangle tend to be above the line, and the low contact tend to be below the line, which means that both size and having contact with other islands leads to better, fancier tools. So that's consistent with the idea. Uh, One of my grad students and I were wondering if we could replicate this thing in the lab. So we brought in undergraduates and we gave them a task in which they could use a complex image editing program to try to replicate this figure in the lab. And each generation could learn from either one person in the prior generation or five people in the prior generation. So this is kind of the very interconnected society and this is the not so interconnected society. Okay, um, then after they did the test, they could write up some information up to two pages and pass it down the chain. And so the next person down the chain got um, whatever the person made that hopefully looked like this, and then they got this, and they also got the write-up. So this is our effort to capture cultural transmission. And we can measure this, the skill of the person just by comparing their figure to this. And what you find, so this is 10 generations. They're passing information along here. And when you, can only talk, when you can only learn from one other person, you can see the skill, they had a really good first round, but then it just kind of bounces around and they don't get better by the last round. In fact, they get slightly worse. When you can learn from five people, you get this rapid increase. So that these guys at the last round are much better than these guys in the last round. So you get this accumulation of skill and know-how. Now in fact, so this, is, this gives you a, a pretty good look at the data. So this is the first round. And you can see these guys had a lucky first round. They had some good, good players. These guys, not so good. This is, the, this is the, the interconnected five group, and this is the one group. So these, these second round doesn't go so well, not so well here. But then somewhere around here, these guys kick in, and then, then everything starts accumulating. These guys don't go anywhere. So by the last round, the worst person in this group is better than the best person in this group. And that's just a result of the sort of interaction of minds. Okay. So Uh, Then really a core idea for for human evolutionary biology that comes out of all this is that this process is not only relevant now and has been relevant in recent human history, but it actually has driven much of our species' genetic evolution. So in fact, I think it's responsible for our large brains. So genetic evolution gives gives rise to cultural evolution here where we have the second system of inheritance. And there, you begin generating tools, and fire, and cooking, and useful information. Then there's pressure on genes to build brains that are bigger, and better able to acquire, organize, and store that information. But as brains get better at cultural information, there's more of this stuff being generated, so there's more pressure to have bigger brains, and you have an autocatalytic process. Now, this process eventually hits the stops. The the primate body plan is such that uh, the birth canal can only get so large without uh, impinging on women's ability to walk and run. And evolution has modified that already, uh, making women less efficient at running because of the trying to get the birth canal as big as possible. Uh, But of course this system has kept zooming along and generates a division of labor, a division of information between males and females where they know different stuff and eventually a larger division of labor. And then we end up with, you know, storing information extrasomatically, so outside of our brains.
3: We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now back to John Zipper's week-to-week political roundtable talk right here on the Michelle Mial Show.
0: So that drives human brain expansion. Um, the next, uh, this is almost the final important point, is that This also leads to a bunch of things which drive our genetic evolution, so specific products. So the black area here are products of cultural evolution that emerged deep in in, in human evolutionary history, which then had important consequences for our anatomy, physiology, and psychology. So let me start with this first one, cooking and fire. So if you look at the size of our teeth and the size of our stomachs and, and the size of our colons, they're all too small for a primate of our body size who eats the kind of food we eat but they do make good sense if you think of us as a a cooking species. So cooking breaks down food and pre-digests it, so this allowed our body to contract the size and energy required for our colon, our stomach, and our teeth, our chewing apparatus, so we cut things up. Other animals don't have that, so this created a big shrinkage in in our digestive tract. It might have also given us an interest in fire that other animals have. We don't know how to innately make fire, and we have to culturally learn how to make fire and cook, so that's the transmitted part. But we're interested in learning about fire, at least uh, during a certain period of uh, childhood. Now, another one which I'll, I'll, I'll jump back to this one. So. Dan Lieberman has argued that humans are a running species, that we have all these adaptations for long-distance running. We can outrun all kinds of animals. We have springy arches in our feet, which um, uh, chimpanzees don't have. We have an, a nuchal ligament in our head, which allows us to turn our body independent. Other primates don't have that. And most importantly, we have a sweating system. So we have all these sweat glands all over our body. and We can really cool ourselves by running. But if you look at that system like an engineer, it's missing something. And what it's missing is a water tank. Uh, but if you look at then hunter-gatherers who can chase down prey, they can run for five or six hours until prey just collapses and just run it into the ground. They're using their knowledge of where water sources are in the environment, how to find water, what plants signal where water is. And also they're carrying uh, culture, you know, canteens basically, or uh, some kind of water container. So in the group most best study, they carry ostrich eggs. And this, this allows them to replenish their, their sweating system, which allows them to run farther than the animals. So it's a, it's a package of cultural and genetic evolution. Uh, work with young children shows they have a specialized system for learning about plants and animals, and I'll give you one quick example. Um, if you learn that Felix likes milk, you could assume that that's just something about Felix the cat and not something in general, but, we, but kids automatically assume it's about cats. And then if you ask them about a lion, they'll automatically extend it to lions or or tigers, because they have a sort of building a relationship between these species. Um, Similar patterns with artifacts and weapons. The other thing that's interesting that's important for understanding cultural evolution is prestige status. So humans have a type of status called dominant status, which we see in other primates. It's where you control force and force threat and your subordinates are scared and they they bow their heads down to you and they generally try to avoid you. But in prestige hierarchies, other individuals have useful information. So learners wanna pay them deference in order to get access to that information to be able to hang around and learn from them. So there, people wanna be near them and look at them and watch them. Um, So it creates a second kind of status, which has a whole different set of ethological kind of body position patterns. The other thing cultural evolution does is it produces norms, social rules, and it produces how people judge others based on how they do social rules. And this leads to a process of self-domestication. So people learn to be docile rule followers in a way that we don't see in other primates. And then finally I'll mention uh, ethnic groups. Cultural evolution gives rise to different groups that have different norms or social rules, and they're marked by different languages or dress or dialect. And when we look at young kids, they already have a psychology that carves the world up in certain ways, and they preferentially learn from those who share their dialect, and they preferentially interact with those who share their dialect. And they readily make these, what we think of as stereotypical generalizations based on little bits of information. But that's because they're mapping the world in a way that only would have existed if there was cultural evolution went first. Okay, so uh, let me just summarize a few key points here. So um, we got to think of our learning abilities as adaptation. So we're evolved to extract useful adaptive information from our world. This creates a second system of inheritance which runs along in parallel and interacts with genetic inheritance. Uh, this leads to culture-driven genetic evolution. So I went through a, some brief examples of how we get products of culture-driven genetic evolution. And, uh, one of the things I, I only very briefly mentioned there was the process of self-domestication. So because we can learn social rules and we can punish each other through reputational damage and other ways, we became a more docile, cooperative, and pro-social species because we have to learn the local rules, other, otherwise we get in trouble. So that's a gene culture coevolutionary process. Crucial to this was expanding our collective brain. So, so once you can... Um, uh, make these social rules, you can build larger groups, you can have bigger collective brains and generate more adaptive technology. And my last point is that we should think of culture as part of our biology, not separate from it. It's part of it in two ways. One, it's driven our genetic evolution, but it's also changes our brains and hormones in ways that uh, we're just beginning to understand. For example, if you've learned to read, you have a thicker corpus callosum than you would have had otherwise, which is the information highway between the two hemispheres of our brain. You also have specialized circuitry for recognizing letters in your left hemisphere. You have a larger verbal memory, um, and you get more whole brain activation when you hear spoken speech. And that's just one thing, learning to read, that changes your brain. That's all.
2: So let's get started. I was uh, fascinated by the sheer uh, complexity of the information you bring to bear uh, in your, your, your theories and your suggestions about how we became so successful. So let me, let me ask you, that one of the things that interested me was that the larger and more interconnected our populations are, you say the... the the more complex our tools will be. Is there a limit? Uh,
0: Yeah, so we we think uh, both uh, theoretically and um, there is some evidence from laboratory experiments that there is a point at which you get too interconnected where you can um, stifle the variation you need for the process to work. Uh, People become too similar in their ideas, so you should keep enough separateness in order to maintain the the variation in the population.
2: And so is there too
0: large of a population to create? We we haven't found that so far. There's no reason to think that that's a problem.
2: Interesting. So um, you certainly have have, uh, proven the point that two heads are better than one when it looks at uh, learning from uh, generation or from group to group. Um, Is there... uh, is there also um, more complexity with the larger number of people in the group?
0: You mean social complexity? Yes. Yeah, so I mean this has been the big challenge that humans have faced is how to scale up society. So. You can't get a larger collective brain until you're able to get more and more people to interact in, in peaceful and productive ways. So a lot of what human societal evolution is, is figuring out different kinds of institutions which allow more and more humans to you know trade but also share information and, and profitably interact uh, in mutually beneficial transactions. So, yeah.
2: Great. So uh, you have kind of reconceptualized the notion or the debate about nature Versus nurture, I and mean, you've added this whole other factor, culture, into that. So, how does that affect the equation of nature and nurture?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, what I take, you know, what I take us to be doing here is saying that, you know, that debate is over. We've now solved it. Um, we ha- we, you know, we know we're products of of genetic evolution. Um, we know we're closely related to these other species, and it's our our cap- very capacities for learning and for being for for nurture to occur is itself a product of natural selection. So by turning the logic of evolutionary theory uh, onto this question, and, we, and we've informed it and we've filled it out. So I think we can put that one away.
2: Okay. So in your book, you have a section called uh, altruism and a chili pepper. Can can you explain how altruism is like a chili
0: pepper? Right. Hey, that's another great question. So, um, so in the, as I talked about up here, our ability to learn to like chili peppers requires us to overcome an innate aversion. So, like other primates, we have an innate aversion to uh, eating this kind of pain-inducing substance. But when we ha- when we grow up and live around other individuals who seem to be enjoying something, we can actually mentally turn. Uh, pain into pleasure and so we turn we get that hot sensation but instead of being ah I'm not gonna eat that anymore you're like mm, that's pretty good I want some more of that hot sensation uh, altruism can be like that and if we live in a place where giving is good to other people and and being altruistic and along some dimension is good that actually makes us happier it fires up the reward, reward circuitry in our our brains so what would be a costly unpleasant thing in in a world with different social norms, different beliefs, different reputations, can become a pleasurable, rewarding thing in the right social circumstances, even though you're still giving money away. So there are these experiments on charitable giving where people give to charity and it actually fires their pleasure circuits, the same circuits that fire when they get money. Uh, But if you give it to charity, then you get the same kind of feedback.
2: Wow. So uh, you talk a lot about um, culture driving our genetic evolution. What, in your mind, could we expect the next human evolutionary modification to be, uh, in light of, say, texting? Uh, will it create more flexible thumbs? What, what do you think is the next uh, human modification?
0: Right. Well, so the, the thumbs are only going to occur if that's somehow leading you to have uh, greater reproductive success. Now I know there's a lot of sexting, but I'm not, I'm not sure that 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 translates um, but uh, two thoughts on that so uh, and they're both kind of fun. Um, right now, cesarean sections are you know only in um, uh, the richer societies, right? But if that were ever to spread and become a general feature of all societies, this is going to relieve a a huge selection pressure, which is the selection for our heads to be small enough to fit out of that birth canal. So if you can take them out a different way, then that selection pressure is released, so you'd expect baby heads to get bigger over time. Um, The other one that's interesting and and, and no doubt controversial is that uh, we know there's genetic variation in people's tendency to be religious. And we know that religious people, at least on some of the the currently global religions, tend to have a lot more babies. They have higher fertility, even if you control for income and all that kind of stuff. So there should be selection occurring for people to be more religious.
2: So So because we're in the heart of Silicon Valley here, I have to ask you how this uh, cultural coevolution affects creativity.
0: Well, one of the things that, that the idea suggests is that a lot of creativity is actually the recombination of different ideas. So if you want to be creative, you should put yourself at the nexus of very different and divergent ways of thinking. Um, I've actually made use of this in my own career, because my PhD is in, is in anthropology, but it was I got many ideas when I when I moved into the University of British Columbia where I was set in a psychology department and in an economics department. And just traveling back and forth from you know psychology seminars and economics seminars is is stimulating in a way that if you were just in one silo, you would you would never get stimulated.
3: We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this.
1: Um, just to entertain people and so it seems like that works you know I would say to young kids you know just kinda form your own identity and uh, and, you know don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, You can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties we have that for you. Spotlight on success and achievement
0: Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far.
3: And now back to John Zipper's week-to-week political roundtable talk right here on The Michelle Miao Show. So I've also been fascinated by your scholarly history. You are a,
2: uh, an engineer, a psychologist, anthropologist, archaeologist, uh, linguist, and so forth. Is there um, a field that you haven't pursued that you think might help you further understand the complexity of our success?
0: Yes, so I think about that a lot because I always feel like I'm weak uh, in political science and sociology. My ancient Chinese history isn't very good, but I have a good friend who, who helps me with that. Um, but but that's, and that, and that's exactly how you do it, is you, is you find good friends and colleagues, uh, and they can provide guidance into these uh, fields and, and help you not make any, do anything too stupid.
2: So I, I couldn't help but think about the book and your theories when I was watching the Iowa caucus last night, and I was wondering what the political process, I mean, how can you explain the political process by virtue of uh, coevolutionary evolutionary uh, genetic study?
0: Yeah, well, that's a pretty big question. There's a lot of ways to go with it. Um, I mean, the, the one... Obvious, you know, in terms of the political climate, the one obvious insight comes from the emergence of our tribal psychology, which I talk about in the book. So we really are looking for people who, you know, speak with our dialect, share similar ideas, and you know, there's this kind of way in which you form teams and coalitions with those people, which is which is pretty obvious in the political climate. Um, and the other way is, it's, you know, just more thinking more broadly as as democracy. You know, most societies haven't been democratic. This is a relatively new thing on the human scene. It's it's trying to tap certain aspects of our psychology, but it's not something that works anywhere. It was able to uh, develop in Europe because there had been a particular history there, and so it's hard to transport it because you know there's a hand there's a glove and hand fit between sort of cultural practices and larger level national institutions.
2: I also found it interesting with the dialects, the different dialects of the candidates did not necessarily reflect uh, how well they did, because you would think that some of the more unusual dialects uh, would, we would not be as drawn to by virtue of your your studies. Can you explain that?
0: Yeah, I'm going to have to think more about that one. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm, yeah, um, That's certainly true. In fact, a, a newspaper reporter from the Washington Post was... Asking me why you know Donald Trump is appealing in the South, given that he he's a New Yorker, and uh, I'm gonna have to I, I have to study Don, the Donalds more.
2: Back to us. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's gonna take years of work. And...
2: <laughs> okay, so um, I think about the survival of the fittest as a, a, th- a theoretical model that most of us grew up with. How does that relate to or differ from your basic theories on our evolution?
0: Yeah, so uh, everything I talked about is, is just kind of an extension of, uh, not well, it's all an extension of Darwin's original ideas, but of course there's been a lot of advancements made since Darwin's original ideas, but it's an extension of those ideas. And Darwin actually, uh, in The Descent of Man, he begins to talk about cultural evolution. Now, he doesn't make the clean separation that I make between genetic and cultural evolution, but he talks about the, the acquisition of, in, in, uh, acquisition of habits and how this can be a naturally selected process. So he begins to kind of talk about cultural evolution.
2: So, uh, let me take another theory that most of us are familiar with, and that's Maslow's theory of uh, hierarchy of needs. How does that fit into our evolutionary, uh, our cultural evolution?
0: Well, I mean, human societies all have to, you know, solve basic needs, uh, food and water and whatnot. Um, So different cultural adaptations can help solve those. Uh, But what's really impressive about humans is how we get these whole domains of value and reputation that are kind of separate from those. Um, And one of the interesting things about this approach is that you can theorize what genetic, what uh, biologists would think of as maladaptation. Because sometimes the kinds of learning mechanisms I talked about can actually go wrong. And the most obvious place where it goes wrong is something like prestige. So one of the case examples that I like is in, in Melanesia, so in the, in, um, around Vanuatu and, and not too far from Fiji, um, people, men became prestigious and got status for growing yams. And then soon, you know, there was a yam competition to see who could grow the biggest yam, and farmers would put all this work and effort into growing the biggest possible yam. But the thing is, at a certain size, the yams become inedible. They're just fibrous. So the whole thing, it was about being a great farmer, but they just became about growing a big yam, and the yams were no longer edible. So it became a big waste of resources to grow supersized yams. So that's the kind of thing where it can go awry due to prestige.
2: So in your book, you created a new understanding of a subset of the human culture, the weird people. And for those folks who haven't read the book, they might find that interesting. Do you want to just share a little bit about why weird people are overgeneralized?
0: Yeah, so uh, one of the things that two of my UBC colleagues, Steve and Arnor and Zion, have been working on for a number of years is... um, In 2010, we wrote a paper in which we compiled all the available evidence from around the world where we had a number of different societies that had been measured along some uh, psychological domain. So uh, conformity, ability to solve embedded figures tasks, um, fairness, uh, willingness to punish others for violations. And we found that Westerners... We're at the far end of the distribution repeatedly as we put all this data together. So in many ways, to draw psychological conclusions by studying undergraduates at your home university is to draw conclusions from the weirdest people in the world. And WEIRD is an acronym that stands for Western Educated Industrialized Rich and Democratic. Um, So it's a a critique of psychology and, and related experimental disciplines.
2: Thank you. Uh, So I know that you have spent time with a number of extremely diverse indigent uh, individuals uh, around the world, and I was just curious, is there one or two experiences that you had that were truly shocking?
0: Yeah, I guess the, one of the things that really struck me uh, is uh, during my first trip, I had been traveling by dugout canoe with a, with a group of Machiganga to more and more remote rivers. And we finally got to like the Machiganga village. These are an indigenous population in the Peruvian Amazon who was at kind of the end of the farthest river. And so I was, I was spending the night there. And they said to me something like, um, the first thing they said was, so we heard that Americans have been on the mood. Is that true? And I said, Yeah, yeah. I said that that is true. Americans have been to the moon, and they said, Well, are there rocks? Are there trees there? No trees. Are there rivers there? No rivers. Are there fish there? Uh, No fish. Well, why would anyone want to go there? Well, that's a fair question. (laughs) I don't have a good answer. And then they said, Well, then you you come and you have all these machetes and all this stuff, and we hear where they have cars where you're you're from. How is it that you guys have so much and we have so little? and I was a grad student at the time. I'll have to get back to you. Uh, so I, I've been working on that problem. So I'll have more to say about that in my next book. But
2: So we have several questions from the audience. Um, and again, uh, several of them uh, relate to Silicon Valley and our inventions and how smartphones uh, and, uh, and other... Uh, developments such as that have affected uh, and will affect human evolution.
0: Yeah, I mean, the main thing that that these ideas, where it interfaces with that kind of thing, is just that it's creating more interconnected minds. And so it has the possibility to really stimulate even more innovation. If you can have an idea, I have an idea in Cambridge, and I start talking to a guy in Zurich, and he starts talking to a guy in Beijing, this information can uh, flow really rapidly. You see real bursts in human innovation whenever there's a a technological innovation like writing that allows storage and, and ideas to spread by books or transport, so ships and things like that.
2: If socialization provides such a great advantage, why haven't more species adopted it?
0: Yeah, that's a a great question, and uh, chapter 16. (laughs) Uh, I I have a whole chapter on that. And to try to make a long story short is that And the key thing to understand is that when you're a cultural learner, the thing that gives you an advantage is if there's lots of information out there, so there's tools and how to make shelters and tricks to find food that you can acquire if you're a good cultural learner, if you know how to copy and imitate people. But now imagine the world when you're the first one. There's no information out there. There's been no buildup of this accumulated know-how. So you can think of natural selection as an investor. It could invest in this... um, social learning, which is not going to pay off right now because there's nothing in the world to socially learn. Or it can invest in individual learning. You can figure out things on your own in the environment and play around with some tools. And that's going to get you some tools and some tricks just by your own experimentation. So it's always going to keep picking the individual learning. And you know chimps are quite good at figuring out by themselves. But it can't switch over to the social learning um, until there's enough things in the world to learn. Do
2: we know? Uh- or can we determine from your theories uh, whether or not Neanderthals became uh, extinct because of genetics, culture, or both?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I can't address the question of why, I mean, that's a big debate in the field as to why, why Neanderthals went extinct. Uh, although the one thing the approach does tell you about Neanderthals, it's often assumed, so first is a fact, Neanderthals have brains that are as big as ours or maybe even bigger. So, if it's about brain size and, and whatever goes along with brain size, then you would expect them to have been have done well, and in fact, maybe outcompeted us. Instead, we were these African migrants who roared into Europe and kept pushing the Neanderthals back until they eventually went to, went to extinction. So. Uh, the question is, why is that? Well, the typical assumption has been that it's, it's um, there must be something different about their brain. So people have suggested it's language or that they have uh, too large a visual cortex or something like that. But another idea is, is the Neanderthals were adapted to cold Europe, which meant they had to live in very small groups, very widely scattered. Meanwhile, the African variants were living in a much warmer place with richer uh, environments in which they could live in much larger groups. So as we think they invented bows and arrows and lots of other technologies. And this gave them the know-how to then expand out of Africa and and, possibly exterminate the Neanderthals. Um, So this may have been a kind of replacement, the same way, um, sadly, in the modern world, Europeans expand with guns, germs, and steel. And now there's no Tasmanians or very few Aboriginals.
2: I want to remind our listening audience that we are here with Dr. Joseph Henrich, author of The Secret of Our Success.
3: Thanks so much for tuning in today. For more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed, you can head to michellmeow.com. See you all next week.